this is Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasper. This is Frank Pelicone. Uh, tonight, we're going to do another deep dive episode, and it is going to be on 1988's Willow, directed by Ron Howard, with a story by George Lucas. It stars Warwick Davis as Willow Offgood, Val Kilmer as Mad Mardigan, Jean Marsh as Queen Bath Morta, Joanne Wally as Sorsha, Billy Bartley, Barty as the High Aldwin, and it has a 51% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 79% from audiences. Um, so, Frank, I asked you again, did you see this movie pretty early on? Like, did you see it in the theater? Did you see it on VHS? Where did you nah, there was There was no theaters to go to in 1988 here. Um, or none that I was going to. Uh, on, on VHS, like shortly after, probably within like a week or two of it being released on VHS. Hmm. <clears throat> I was super excited for this movie uh, before it came out because of my undying love of like fantasy adventure. Hmm. Yeah, see, I don't think I knew about this movie before it came out. I actually did see it in the theater, and it's one of the few movies that I saw twice in the theater besides the Star Wars movies um, when I was very young. So this might have been the first movie that I actually saw twice in the theater um, that I can actually remember seeing twice. So um, were you really into this at the time period? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I fucking loved Willow. I mean, I would have been probably 11 or 12 when i saw this so um this was right at the beginning of my i would have read stuff like narnia um maybe the uh what's her name um susan cooper stuff like the uh, shit i don't know if you know those books the susan cooper no idea with the um they're basically like like a riff on Arthurian legend, but they have like other British Isles, um, Irish mythology, British mythology moved in with them. It's like the drawing of the three and um, I don't know. They're good. Yeah. I, I, this was my first introduction to any kind of fantasy like this, honestly. This also is right at the beginning, probably of my, my time playing D and D. Mm. like right before i probably got into D because i think that was when i was about 13 or 14 that i started like actually playing D. um so movies like this were a really big influence on just my interest in getting into uh tabletop role playing um <clears throat> and really a lot of it you know from the world that willow creates and you know we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that yeah like yeah i was super in this movie when i was a kid like i i saw in the theater twice i had it on vhs pretty early i probably watched it i can't even estimate like probably like 12 to 15 times like on vhs like but i had not seen it since i would probably guess like 91 or something like that 92 Hmm. so i i was really into it for like two to three years and um i had the die cast did you have the die cast figures from willow at all yeah um we had so this is when tony was old enough to kind of like be into collecting figures and stuff and he was really into um figures that didn't move or anything he liked like 
I don't know what you would even call them. Uh, like non-action figure figures, like like almost like little figurines, I guess is what they were. Um, yeah, we had we had a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. I think I had like all of them, and I would play with them consistently and make up stories. And I remember, like specifically, I one day I went out when it snowed and like played with them to try to like almost like recreate the snow sequence, like in in the movie so i was like super into this damn movie um where i was like trying to recreate sequences with figures that couldn't move um so yeah i um i was i was i was a big fan of this movie like when i was a kid um how do you feel about now like oh i i still still love it um Mm -hmm. i've seen willow at least like probably 20 times in my life um it's one of those movies where in the same vein of something like um the thing or texas chainsaw or goonies um princess brides another good example a movie where if i have the chance to watch it and i'm not actively interested in watching something else i will always take the chance to watch it like i will always spend the time even if I don't watch the whole movie to watch, you know, like an hour or two or, or an hour of it, maybe half hour here and there, um, or just sit there and, you know, eat some SpaghettiOs and on a Saturday and watch it in my pajamas or something, just because it's so much nostalgic affection for Willow and because I still enjoy it today. So I think it's a really, really well done movie. Yeah, I it's think I've, some... I've avoided it, I think, all these years um, because I worried that i wouldn't feel those things ever again for it but yeah i don't know i mean i well how did you feel about it watching it now i enjoyed it i i I had a lot of nostalgia for it i enjoyed it and it doesn't mean i now that as an adult i have criticisms of it but um i still enjoy the process of watching it like i thought it was a fun movie like still yeah the weird thing about willow is and th- this is true for a lot of um a lot of fantasy from the 80s is that as a kid it feels much larger than it feels when you watch it as an adult yeah um one of the criticisms that you uh levied against excalibur when we talked about it years ago is that it feels like they're always like riding through the same set all the time mm-hmm. like the same patch of woods and there's a lot of that feeling in Willow, um, where for being this large fantasy kingdom, it doesn't really feel like they go all that many places. They're just kind of in like this part of the woods and then this part of the woods. And then now they're in this field and now they're on this mountain, but it all feels like it's so close because it only takes place over like really a few days in terms of the actual story. Um, but they go from, you know, like dense forest to the top of a mountain in the snow. And it's like all that stuff has to be within, you know, walking distance of each other. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, maybe that's because I had like a like a 35, 36 million dollar budget. So um, and a lot of that, you know, would be practical effects and special effects. Um, this is one of the early ILM movies, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, mm-hmm. in terms of like um 
like graphical effects with the the trolls and stuff like that um and the morphing of um uh Finn Rizel into uh the different animals as Willow tries to like perfect his uh his sorcery skills um yeah I think it's very impressive for 35 million dollars in the time period I mean yeah I think I think you can see the 35 million dollar budget now but as a kid, I, I didn't notice any of that stuff I know, like, that I can notice now. Yeah. But it's just, it's it's a good adventure. It's got a lot of, um, not really any downtime to it. Um, the performances are all very, there's a lot of investment, you can tell, from the people making the movie. Um, particularly, mm-hmm. uh, Val Kilmer is the, probably the best example of just, like, the scenery chewing of Mad Mardigan. Um, but that works like because it and you know lucas being involved in this there's a lot of things that are callbacks to other things that lucas does because he just mm-hmm. loves like imitating himself but there's a lot of indiana jones in mad martigan and there's a lot of han solo in mad martigan and yeah it always works i mean if there's one thing you can say about lucas like he knows how to sell a like a roguish scalawag with a heart of gold so yeah th- that's what i felt watching it this time around i was really into man martigan as a kid like he was like my favorite character by far and like now i see that in some ways kilmer's dorm a harrison ford impression like a lot yeah. of times in it um and it still works like you're you're exactly right it works um but yeah from a performance standpoint yeah he's definitely i think just doing like Han Solo in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, but from a much uh, much more lecherous perspective. Yes. I mean, you're introduced you're introduced to Han Solo in a bar, basically, but you're introduced to Mad Martigan in a gibbet, you know, like mm-hmm. hung up and left to die um, on the side of the road for, you know, eventually you find out being like a thief and a um i guess going a wall from the army of the the kingdom or whatever like however they uh however they phrase it with eric the guy who's the mm-hmm. sort of like the knight in shining armor that's always been dedicated to defending the realm and martigan who was the guy who had all the talent in the world but <clears throat> sort of abandoned his duties yeah um, but then to build that into him being a likable character, I mean, there's the part where um, about midway through the movie, Martigan has gotten them to the place where Finn Rozell is supposed to be and is leaving now to go and kind of like live his life, you know, because he feels like he's done his part. And there's that nod of recognition and appreciation between Willow and Martigan that's... um. Mad Martigan, I guess I shouldn't call him Martigan because Mad Martigan is all one word, but um, just really effective and cool. And I don't know, it did really by the end of the movie, like you're fully invested in Mad Martigan as a hero. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's done really well. And again, I have a lot more respect for Val Kilmer after watching the documentary about him, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of how he approached making movies at this point in his his career and you can just tell that dude just gets invested in 
in what he's doing and like really like just puts his all into trying to be that character and really effective here and he has great chemistry with the woman that would eventually become his wife and uh joanne wally kilmer mm-hmm. um who's just joanne wally here um also a great performance as uh sorcia the daughter of the evil bev morta um but yeah it's uh, there's so i don't know like really like what order you want to go and like breaking stuff down in this movie but well we're already talking about the acting so let me just add on this is I don't think I understood until I was older now the achievement that Warwick Davis has in this movie of as charismatic as Kilmer is in it, of Warwick Davis carrying this movie on his back the entire way. And I certainly didn't know at the time period that I know now is that he was 18 years old when he did this performance. Like, I think with little people, like, especially at a young age i didn't understand like how like ages and stuff like that and i didn't understand how young he was and he's portrayed as somebody who almost like in terms of like the story of his familial status and all those kind of things is somebody maybe like in his mid-30s um and like the idea that he was 18 years old and is able to give this performance and he's in almost every single scene of this movie yeah and is able to have the kind of sarcastic reactions and like you know uh being i don't know flummoxed the way he is like you know of someone who is you know much older like he gives the performance of somebody who is much older at 18 years old throughout this movie um, that made me believe that he was older when I was a kid and still makes me believe that he's older and not 18 years old when I'm watching it now. Sure. And I think it's a really, really impressive performance. And I think this is like, I just think it's extremely impressive that he was able to do what he did um, at that age. Um, I can't imagine many 18 year olds being able to, have this kind of pressure put on him consistently throughout a movie and being able to carry it as well as he did um i agree with that it's um it's a really good performance yeah um and also again so i'm gonna talk about this more from a perspective of someone who's now played you know tabletop role-playing games for most of his life um it's a really great hero's journey story without being like overtly heavy-handed or i love tolkien i know that you also love tolkien like we're both really big fans of the way that that man like writes and describes scenes and stuff there's that whole dawn of time misty mountain hop feeling to like stuff like tolkien's universe that makes it feel grand and large and epic and there's a a dirtiness and immediacy to willow and especially the way that that warwick davis you know just has this performance where he's a, a simple farmer that just loves his family wants to be a sorcerer but is also just cares about doing the right thing 
in spite of adversity or you know criticism or like mockery and the world that's built there and i said that you know it, it feels kind of small but it also feels very intimate in the sense that you know these aren't people like the joke from whatever that is clerks two or whatever of here's 30 minutes of them walking across the scenery like right. that's not willow like willow they're on dirt roads and hiding in bushes and walking through like swamps and dirt and shit and it just it, there's an intimacy to both his performance and the way that it's filmed um especially because again like you mentioned like warwick davis is is a little person um so a lot of the action takes place close to the ground or you know it's not bombastic or those although that can happen sometimes it's just very um very human mm -hmm. and there was a lot of influence there on in my opinion on me personally just in terms of like how i viewed narrative structure from the perspective of like presenting like fantasy um which you know is like playing tabletop role-playing games you have to have the ability to kind of create a believable scenario just with your words and i think a lot of my inspiration for the way that i kind of describe things and look at stuff comes from the way that willow was filmed and you know presented in terms mm -hmm. of the performances so Um, but yeah, Warwick Davis, really impressive performance. Um, I think I think the actress that plays Bab Morda is great as like a the evil witch. Um, I mean, there's a lot of exaggerated motion and um, melodramatic like flailing of arms and whatever. But the scene at the end of that movie where she's just wants to kill that baby and she's aged incredibly because she's no longer like using her magic to sustain herself so she's like a crone at that point and like the way they film just like the water running down her face and it's 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 it's, it's a really great villain death i think and one of my favorite fantasy um final encounters or whatever because that always happens in fantasy movies where you know the hero has to finally confront the villain and overcome the evil or whatever and she just does a great job of presenting that evil in both a larger than life mystical kind of way and like a really petty small like tyrant grasping for like their last straws of power or whatever it's just it's it's really well done it, it really it. is and she's always somebody who like and, and there's something about the costuming and outfitting her like in that scene that like makes her even more significant and powerful to me um i felt that from a young age seeing it as an adult the only thing i wish i wish there was more screen time and a little bit more like backstory to that character um other than just being and maybe that's my modern sensibilities now but other than just being the evil queen um i just wish there was another 10 minutes of screen time with her at some point because it's a really good performance and i think that there's more nuance to milk from that but this isn't really a movie of nuance necessarily. So I guess I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's why it's, they didn't do that. It's one of those things where, and there's a Willow uh, television series that may or may not have premiered by the time you hear this, depending on when we um, upload this episode um, that takes place decades after the events of the original movie where you look at things especially like game of thrones you know and i don't think you can undercut the importance of that in terms of bringing fantasy to the small screen 
but Willow would have been much better as a 10, 12, like episode hour long, you know, mm-hmm. mini, mini series, like telling the story and showing some of the backstory of these characters. And because all of them are interesting, like, I think General Kale is one mm-hmm. of the best, like visually one of the best, like bad guys um, of that time period. I mean, maybe next to like characters like Vader mm-hmm. um, and Tote you know, as being like just really visually impressive. And it's funny because it's all like Lucas, you know, Lucas characters, but right. That Im- that imposing frame and that crazy ass sword with all the random just like spikes and shit on it. And that friggin' skull mask, man. That, yep. He's just an incredibly impressive villain. Yeah. And one that manages to not just be kind of a disappointment in the end. You know, I mean, that final fight where he's basically killing everybody that he comes across on the battlefield until Mad Mardigan is able to finally overcome him. And it's, um, it's a really great scene. And it's really like, again, the whole siege of, um, Tira's lean, um, and then the subsequent siege of, uh, Bab Morda's, um, castle, such an influence on me in terms of like visual narrative and just the way that things are shown and choreographed it's um very much a callback to you know um the robin hood movies from like the 40s and 50s and stuff like um shit i just had his name and now i can't remember the swashbuckler guy errol flynn Mm -hmm. very much a callback in terms of the especially the way mad martigan has done to errol flynn um, and something where you can see exactly how uh, exactly how those movies influenced Lucas and Spielberg throughout Star Wars and Raiders. And then again, in this movie, um, in the way that they present these characters that are like the rogues with a heart of gold. Um, and there's like, even though Ron Howard directed this movie, this movie is like all George Lucas in terms of the characters and the setting and um, the way that it's all presented and the way that it plays out and the idea of, you know, this little, I'm basically aping, you know, the Frodo in the Hobbit, but this guy that's kind of almost beneath, beneath notice for most people being the person that's able to, save the day and it's through his ingenuity and not through his like mastery of magic or anything but just his Mm -hmm. his quick wit and his ability to basically like grow to have confidence in himself and stand up to this woman who's you know the most powerful witch on the planet and he's still able to overcome her i think it's um i don't know i i think it's really cool i like the character willow a lot yes so one of the things that um i told you i wanted to talk about um is i think it's really interesting to talk about lucas's world building and the way that he the way that he presents things to to make his characters seem otherworldly and still relatable i guess in some ways Mm. um so i was watching this movie this time and this is not something 
I've ever really thought about before. But I started looking at just like the naming conventions that Lucas uses here. And the way that I started then thinking about things like Star Wars and stuff and the way that he names people in Star Wars. And it's like I started looking at the names of the people in Willow and kind of researching like the the etymology of like those words that are used. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he takes words from different languages like Hebrew and there's some um, some African languages here like Urdu maybe or something I think and Irish and he combines them together so that you get something that sounds fantastical and otherworldly but is at the same time vaguely familiar so that it kind of uh, it creates this world where he can pull from like all kinds of different mythoses and still have it be um, not completely ridiculous. You know, like you're not stumbling over names that don't really exist or whatever. Um, so I don't know, this, is probably, this might be kind of boring, but I found like all of this like interesting when I was researching it. So you've got Bev Morta, first of all, right? Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, like it's just a combination of like a word that sounds like bad and a word that means death sort of in another language right which sure. completely describes like what that character is so she's like you know evil and deadly i'm wondering and, and i've never put, and puts an a at the end of it like to make it feminine yeah yeah i i've never i i couldn't find anything about this but general kale kale is spelled k-e-a-l mm -hmm. which is the same way that pauline kale's name is spelled Oh, that's, that, that's, I did do research. That's a different reference. Yeah. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. I was wondering if that was like yep. a tongue in cheek. Um, uh, what, what is the name of the um, two headed monster in the movie? Do you The remember? thing the troll turns into? Yeah. I can't remember. Um, it's a reference to Cisco and Ebert. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. Like he, he's definitely like poking. A little bit at the critics yeah yeah so i was when, when i when i saw that because i was always general um i can't remember how i thought it was spelled but i had always spelled it wrong but then when i saw that it was spelled like kale i was like oh that's like pauline kale mm -hmm. and then i went and i looked up pauline kale's review of star wars and man she just yes right she yeah. just shit on that movie so i was like uh -huh. oh yeah, that's, that's got to be some kind of like tongue-in-cheek uh-huh um yeah the idea like, of the two-headed monster certainly is definitely Cisco and Ebert though yeah that's funny um you have a name like Mad Mardigan which is um you know the re the repetition of like the um the consonant sounds whatever um which is something that he does a lot like repetition of like letters or sounds in a name you know think of like Admiral Akbar, Mon Mothma um like oh, he yeah. loves that right. in terms of his naming sure. conventions um so Finn Finn Razel, um, Razel is a Hebrew angel that was the keeper of secrets, and I assume that Finn is like you know French for the end. So she's like the final keeper of like the secrets needed to, you know, overcome like the evil at the end. Um, Willow Elfgood. So willows are trees that are notorious for being like flexible and able to like bend and retain their original shape. Um, and I think that off good is just mm. because sure. it sounds like, you know, of good or whatever, of like, good, the, yeah. sure. like it's the opposite of Bav Morta. This is of good. Um, Alora Dannon um, is two words that mean um, 
in Arabic that mean talented and dream. Hmm. So, you know, like the future of the whatever the world is based on Alora Dan and like being able to realize her potential and live past like Bad Morta. Um, you got Burgle Cut which is a guy trying to steal from willow and like steal his land and um it's just a disgusting Herbal, sounding right, name yeah. mm-hmm. um and then tear is lean um tear is land in irish and as lean means humble mm. um in the same language that the allura danon comes from um which is some like form of arabic but again like so so just so just so you know the the, the name of the two-headed um monster that the troll turns into is uh Ebersisk. E-B-O-R-S-I-S-K. Oh I you know I knew that. I, I knew that from the video game actually. Right. Um which right. we'll also talk about in a little bit. Uh-huh. So again, we've made fun of Lucas for years now because of the way that he has named things in terms of like the prequels um mm-hmm. you know kit fisto uh right i can't remember like all their names but there was a bunch of names that we made fun of at the time just for being completely ridiculous but i think there's a certain brilliance in the way that he does it here is that he again he's taking words that either are vaguely recognizable or have some meaning beyond what they are and putting them together and it's often a lot of times two words together or two names together um so that you i think even like subconsciously like feel certain ways about um like tira's lean sounds like this mythical place and it's it's great the way they do it because they talk about it you know intermittently throughout the first part of the movie like oh you know we got to get to tira's lean if we get the tira's lean we're going to get you know this army that we can raise up against bab morta and then the place is cursed and broken and run down and um i don't know it's just it's it's cool and i i think as much shit as like george lucas has gotten over the past 20 years and a lot of it rightly so i believe um i think there is a lot of brilliance in the way that he creates worlds and this is something so willow was an idea that he had like pre-star wars even and it just took him a long time to realize it um and i guess he had talked to howard during the filming of cocoon and asked him to helm this movie Mm. um but it was an idea he'd had for almost 20 years well like 15 16 years at that point um and it fits in with like a lot of stuff that you see later so there's a scene midway through this movie um that lucas and spielberg um when collaborating have tried to recreate probably like five or six times which is a fight in a moving wagon or a moving vehicle of some kind um where mad martigan and willow have to fight off uh general kale's troops or sources troops that are chasing after him and the fight happens between jumping between like controlling the horses and then having to fight somebody in the back of the wagon and then other people like the little brownies mm-hmm. which your favorite part of the movie i know the brownies <laughs> um getting involved to kind of help like drive some of them off and mm-hmm. um again like 100 percent just pulled from you know the errol flynn era swashbuckler movies um that he's you know they're so obsessed with like those 50, 40s and 50s serials um but 
just really well done, um, really fun, um, very energetic and well filmed um, and really fits in with this world because there's enough realism to it where you don't have to completely suspend your disbelief, but it also is fantastical where you can still like kind of enjoy it as a, um, you know, in the fantasy element that, that is presented. So, yeah. So, okay. First naming conventions, like where, so where Lucas falters eventually, like with these naming conventions, and I think he does it much better in the eighties and he does it in the two thousands, but so it's like Darth Vader, right? So it's like Darth obviously like is related to dark in some way. And right. Vader, I know, is like related to the German word for father in some mm-hmm. way. And it's like, but like for American audiences, they would have no idea about that. It just sounds like an intimidating name, Darth Vader, where it's like by the 2000s, he's doing shit like, you know, Darth Maul and Darth Sidious, you know, which have these, like, just, like, these words that have negative connotations to them in some ways after Darth. And it's just really lazy writing at that point. Well, Um, I remember we all made fun of um, General Grievous when we first heard that name. Right, right. Same thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, it's the repetition of the same letter. Mm -hmm. Um, It has a certain uh, whatever fluidity to it, but just hey here's a word that means bad like that's what i'm gonna use yeah but but i think to your point i think there was a much more inventive process to him at one point as opposed to later in life which he gets largely kind of like criticized for so um no i think the names in this are really great like um even though as a child i certainly didn't know general kale um was a reference to pauline kale like um like kale with that card k sound sound like card k sounds are intimidating hard k sounds are harsh you know they they don't sound pleasant and i and and it's so close to the heart the first hard k sound that you really probably like maybe get like uh here in life is killed right? right like you know it's like and it's like it's it's so close to that that i think it works really well um even if it is a in joke but i um the the other thing that you mentioned out of all of that is kind of like talking about the idea of lucas and like you know this idea of fantasy and all this kind of stuff i mean lucas knows tolkien really well um like he's admitted that obi-wan was based off of gandalf like in interviews so like this is a guy who knows Tolkien really well and in some ways this feels like him wanting to make some sort of Tolkien-esque fantasy as I'm watching it sure and like like his own version of it and it really makes me wonder it's like and I have not done research on this and I, I I tried a couple Google searches and couldn't really find anything is like I wonder if Lucas ever thought about doing those movies. And if yeah. they, no, and, and I don't if they were so. possible, do you think he just wants to do his own thing? Yeah. Lucas is very much into his, yeah, for better or worse at <laughs> times into his own creative, yeah, creative universes. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I did want to bring up one thing to you about the universe. Um, and this comes from our good friend, Dave Kerr, who did not like this movie. And just so you know, contemporaneously, the top critics, I like did the math on this. From the top critics at the time, this got a 21%. Like it was largely reviled by top critics um, during the time period. He says that this is less of a movie than a collection of morbid symptoms, a labored arrhythmic narrative, a pathetic dependency on recycled themes and borrowed images, a sour self-mocking humor that suggests the end is near. Even the world of Willow seems to be in its terminal stages. Shot in England, Wales, and New Zealand, Willow takes place in a depressive fantasy land where the sky is overcast, the air is cold, and the ground is muddy, as if it existed in a perpetual dank aftermath of a thunderstorm. The landscape is empty and desolate. The interiors are shabby inns and forbidding castles are um, that are all dim and claustrophobic. It is a world where nothing very pleasant can happen and nothing much does. Um, how do you feel about, like, I mean, I, I don't disagree with Kerr in terms of his description, but like, how do you feel about that in terms of the narrative itself and why that might be the case? Because he has a very psychological interpretation of that that I'm going to mention to you, but it's like narratively, like, why would the world be like that? Can you think of any reason? That it's like so desolate and like barren and all those kind of things. <clears throat> I mean, again, I think it's because Willow's perspective is in the dirt and in the mud and mm -hmm. you know i mean he's and also it's what's well, ruled by an evil queen right right like the world is the world has been almost destroyed like all the armies of men kind of i mean again it's a yes. complete ripoff of you know sure. tolkien in that respect but the armies of men have been driven back by um you know this this evil queen like you said evil queen who's used her power to basically like drive all of civilization to the brink and that's willow's job to you know right like save everyone from like that evil but right I, it, <laughs> my my problem i guess with um with kerr's I don't even know if it's like Kerr's fault because you don't have a lot of fantasy at this point that isn't that isn't high fantasy. And Willow is not as much high fantasy as it is like mid fantasy, which again is something that when you watch watch Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones is not high fantasy. Game of Thrones is like Mid, mid fantasy is not a word. I can't remember exactly what the word that is used to describe it, but 
it's 100% like what it is. It's that there is some magic, there are some monsters, but for the most part, it's about men struggling against each other and against the elements, right? And um, it's just, it was just kind of ahead of its time in that respect. Like if you take Willow today and you look at the TV series um, that's coming out on Disney Plus, that's that show will probably do really well and will be popular as long as it's like, you know, whatever done well, because it deals in a more relatable fantasy element. Whereas prior to, you know, in this, especially during like the 60s and 70s, it's the shit that you hate, you know, the um what's it called like the the harry housing style stuff right mm-hmm. and all of that is like super high fantasy in the sense that it's all high magic monsters you know heroes that are immediately recognizable as heroes and um i don't know i just think it's I, um, I, I so don't know fantasy i just looked this up it's either low fantasy or it's sometimes or called intrusion fantasy um where magical events intrude on an otherwise normal world um is what it's called so it's low or intrusion is the two terms that are used to describe that Hmm. that's interesting yeah yeah to me and in terms of like the fantasy element just from a role-playing game perspective i always think of your standard like fantasy setting is high fantasy with wizards and dragons and whatever um And then there's a fantasy where monsters and magic are less common. Like, it's not something that an everyday person would really see. Um, it's something where... Um, well, it's like a Big Trouble in Little China, right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah. And then there's low fantasy, which is... There's almost no magic or monsters. It's more or less um, just swords and shields and you know right. but game of thrones completely popularized this idea of um oh so you're 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 like taking it a step further than what they classify things as is you're trying to almost like label things as like fantasy and then like some magic being introduced to it and then the high fantasy where yeah yeah so okay, i got you so excalibur is low fantasy where it's mostly right. men fighting each other with like you know weapons and wearing armor mm-hmm. but there are elements of magic and whatever to it mm-hmm. um and then you know there's something like game of thrones which is more of like a midway point fantasy wise where there are people who can wield magic and there are dragons and stuff but for the most part it's you know wars are fought on people on horseback and with swords and shit and then there's something like i don't know like the lord of the rings stuff where there's monsters everywhere and right um magic is everywhere and it's all well men are pushed to the background into it yeah like you know right sure yeah i got you i see what you're saying now yeah um yeah, that's interesting. I, I'd have to think about that more uh, just because I don't read or watch fantasy as much. But um, I see. I, I, I definitely see your point. <laughs> so so just say, so you know, Kerr, Kerr takes this. So it, 
and, and you you know this frank but it's like um just for listeners like there's a number of different ways you can interpret artistic works and you know one of them is just take the narrative at face value one of them is to like you know sit there and take like the 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 ethereal intent like you know there's you know you can take a sociological view you can take a psychological view you can take all these different views so Kerr decides to take a um biographical view biographical slash psychological view of this and he says that there's very little ron howard's personality as a director in willow apart from the light affectionate way with actors that surfaced in splash and night shift George Lucas is the auteur of Willow, and it seems appropriate that the man who introduced the epic fantasy should also usher it out. Appropriate and sad, too, for Lucas has plainly grown tired of his creation, and he isn't too kind to it. The enthusiastic high spirits of Star Wars have given way to frustration and impatience. The sheer gloominess of Willow seems to res- seems a result of Lucas's dissatisfaction with his old formula compounded by an inability to alter it. Because uh, he mentions at some point in his interview how, like, basically, like, Willow has to, like, find the force inside of himself and, like, how, you know, Mad Morgan is Han Solo and blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, Steven Spielberg, Lucas's old colleague, because he can't just stop his Lucas, um, faced a similar crisis in Empire of the Sun by aiming his aspirations toward high art. But Lucas doesn't seem able to make the leap of faith in his own abilities for all the hammering his films do on the necessity of believing in yourself. Lucas no longer appears to trust his own talents. Um, in Willow, the force has left him. He's imitating himself and he's moping while he does it. Um, it's, it's a really fucked up review when you really think about it. It is just like fucking an ad hominem attack on like George Lucas. Um, as much as I don't like Lucas overall, um, respect him, but don't necessarily like like always his artistic vision. It's a really fucked up review. Um to, to leave about this guy when he's not even the guy who directed it he's the guy who's only credited as the story um is to fucking review it upon lucas's psycho- psychology um at the time and the fact that like basically it's his reaction to his psychology and reaction to the fact that he's a shitty writer <laughs> um it's a really fucked up review um for dave kerr to leave um I just thought it was interesting because I read all of these like contemporaneous reviews and like Dave Kerr is just such an asshole. Like, and we haven't talked about Kerr in a long time, but he is just a prick, <laughs> just an absolute prick. What I don't, um, I mean, that's, that's not an objective review of this movie. That's a, uh, like, like you said, like it's, it's just a personal attack. I don't know based on what like just the fact that he doesn't like fantasy or I don't know I there's he he thinks Willow's repeating Star Wars in terms of its narrative and he doesn't like the scenery or the environment or the universe of the movie so like he basically can join those two things together to sit there and say that Lucas is depressed because he's a hack that's 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 here's the thing is that like, look, for better or worse, Lucas's bread and butter is just 
stealing liberally from other sources and then putting sure. his own sort of thumbprint on them and it's like i mean maybe it, it's not quite so known in 1987 or six or whenever willow comes out but it's pretty apparent when you watch anything lucas is involved in that he's just he's got things that he likes and he's got things that he thinks are effective mm -hmm. and sure that's just gonna be it like he's gonna you know lucas is gonna lucas so either like him or you don't i guess right um but dave kerr definitely could have whatever just been more objective yeah but always Kerr's fucking problem sure. i almost forgotten how much i hate dave kerr until you just uh well uh, well it's because the only time dave kerr has come up and maybe the past year most of the times it's like things that you actually agree with um it's which is funny but yeah dave kerr um dave kerr is um is something else but Someday, someday, by the end of the podcast, Frank, the day that we finish the podcast, I want you to see Dave Kerr because um, you've still never seen him. No. Um, I want you to I, I want you to see I want you to say Dave Kerr in the 80s and I want you to see Dave Kerr in the 2010s. Like, I want you to see this guy. Can um, we? I think you either covered or everything's been mentioned in like the notes that I made about myself. You didn't mention about the brownies thing, pixies, brownies, what are they brownies. called? They're brownies. Um, yeah. As an adult, I absolutely hated the brownies. It's one of the spiel or uh, Spielberg Lucas tropes that I really dislike a lot of having these kind of auxiliary characters being comic relief but in annoying ways um and i'm a big kevin pollock fan I, I love that guy but this is just annoying as shit to watch the brownies in this thing um <clears throat> like it's something that could have been excised and i it, it could have been a much better movie i think um or at least less like irritating movie to me um i don't remember being annoyed by them as a kid but i was never a fan of them as a kid so i think this like goes back to childhood that i'm not necessarily a fan of this kind of stuff um so i don't think it doesn't, like, it doesn't bother me no not at all no not at all they're mythical no? characters you know i mean they're just they're it's it's him pulling from you know irish and british folklore uh, okay that's the gotcha you you don't mind like you know like the the it, look it's a it's it's slightly kind of like a jar jar banks thing that's going on yeah definitely i mean it's it's lucas man i mean what do you want like he's, just, I, he's gonna do that shit he's gonna put some character that's a joke in the movie so that a seven-year-old kid can go ah, <laughs> he's drunk like when he falls in the beer right right the, the the screaming and the hollering and the antics like is just too much for me plus like, lucas lucas is the biggest fan of the character that is unreasonably sure of themselves yeah or has like way too much self-confidence like he loves he loves that character he loves to let you see that character get its comeuppance 
and yet still like have some kind of meaningful impact on the overall story yeah in some way you know what i mean like yeah 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 i mean he loves the ewoks right and like what are the brownies but just kind of the let's not talk about this <laughs> why because you don't like the ewoks and we I have like, never no, had I, I do like the ewoks hmm. okay i like the ewoks a lot see you know you always you always freaking making assumptions because i might make some like one side comment one time ever i think the ewoks are much more effective because they end up becoming like a really powerful force for good. I mean, they're the reasons why the rebels win the battle of Endor. Yes. The brownies aren't the reasons why anybody wins anything, but they're there to show, I don't know, they're comic relief, right? They're there to make the kids laugh, to give some puerile humor into, you know, this epic fantasy and to give Lucas a way to, again, like fill his, I don't even know like what that need is his need to have somebody to belittle or something or make the butt of a joke. I think Luke is kind of a bully in real life, but that wouldn't um, surprise me. I mean, right. I mean like the, the, the meek, the Ewoks, you're exactly right. He's done so much better, but it's like, it's, he does have some sort of like almost like Christian notion inside of himself of like the, the, that somehow the meek will end up like, kind of like inheriting the earth type thing like you know i think it's very obvious in willow um and that character himself that it's like the the one that you ignore that you aren't paying attention to is the one that's going to rise up and actually be like um but like i think there's these side characters that do the same thing and then obviously he's also obsessed with the idea of like the forgotten disregarded jaded character also having a hand in all that um like the 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 faithless one also like finding faith in some ways to help out um he's obviously like torn or he's obviously drawn to those notions i suppose um in some way like um i don't know if it's some kind of lapsed religiosity or if Mm. it's like current or not but obviously there's something there um with that guy well it also there's an inherent racism to it too because he's always got to make the the indigenous people that show their worth to the you know the civilized people or whatever i don't know how to say it without like coming off a super you mean like you mean like the inhumans like um like ewoks and um yeah the brownies and the brownies and the gar what what the fuck are they called the gungans gungans yeah gungans exactly yeah right right yeah it's like Um, the fuck there there's a there's a term for it when you're describing it in a way when it's like condescending and almost like an like passively racist but i can't remember what that term is but yeah. he definitely has that and again i think i don't think it's from, a term you're thinking of but it's basically otherism i mean like yeah it's not yeah. there's there's a very specific yeah like film term when it's used mm. to you know anyway so 
Well, to counter, it, to counter that really quickly, though, I do think one interesting thing that I had in my notes is that he does establish, like, in the script process, the term peck is established as a bigoted term. Yeah. And I think it is in, used in an interesting way that Man Mardikin refers to him as peck early on and then obviously, like, starts, like, at some point starts calling him Willow and starts to like learn to respect him and it's like maybe it's not the most subtle or like way in the world but it like it works to establish like that mad morgan is a guy who is changing and coming to respect other people where everyone else that's a villain continues like as you as they get more screen time to call him peck later on including Baff Morton in the final scene like calling him peck uh, later on and um I don't know what the origin of Peck is, like where he came up with that, like necessarily, but um, oh, it, it's because it's an actual term of measurement that means a small portion of another thing. Oh, gotcha. Okay, it's a yeah. a, a, bu- a bushel and a peck. No, I don't know that phrase. Sorry, you don't know that phrase. No, no. Uh, I don't know. A peck is a portion of a bushel, and a bushel is you know a full thing. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. I I I I'm in the town part of our rural county i don't, I don't know what to tell you i only know it from nursery rhymes or whatever i can't remember what nursery rhyme it is but oh that's probably why i hate like fantasy is like usually like so much because i don't know anything about nursery rhymes right that's why <laughs> <laughs> i really don't know anything about nursery rhymes like whatsoever so the other thing i want to talk about with willow is yeah. um sort of the cultural impact of it um beyond the movie itself because Lucas loves his world building. So there is an amazing um, NES game that came out in 89 Mm -hmm. that's based on Willow, but that completely expands like that world and that universe and adds a lot more elements to it. It's um, one of the first top-down role-playing games um, where there was like experience grinding and you could get new weapons and stuff. And it's just freaking amazing game. And then beyond the novelization of the book um chris claremont who's one of my favorite comic writers he was a long-term writer of the x-men um collaborated with lucas to create a series of books that take place 15 years after the events of willow where sorcia and mad martigan are dead and Alora dannon is a teenager and willow is kind of i guess her mentor um i only read the first one but it was it was good it was well written and it's just such a it's such a cool world in terms of its like lore and mythology um i'm really excited that they're going to make this you know this tv series is coming out where they're going to expand on more of that and kind of just open it up beyond the events of the movie um i always think that's cool when yeah that so happens when the books i know you only read the first one you said but it is willow all those years later the high old one he's well i don't know that that's what they call him i don't remember specifically but he's um an accomplished sorcerer okay. oh that's another name that i was thinking um because he's old ald ald is um what like old english for old right and um mm. i just assume yeah. that you know win to make right. you think of like victory or whatever yeah aldwin right right um yeah, it's, but yeah, I assume I assume that'll be the story to some degree is that he's now like 
the yeah, old. Yeah, he's in it. Warwick Sorcerer. Davis. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I assume even if they don't follow these novels, it's like I assume that's the case is he's going to be the, you know, leader of that village, you know, and the sorcerer of the village and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, and I'm assuming it will follow Laura Dannon, like, you know, as the probably protagonist of the film. Um, but yeah, no, it's exciting. That's Disney. That's Disney Plus, right? Like, yes, that'll be yep. on, yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, and whatever, their television shows have been good so far. I mean, I don't have any complaints. So yeah, there's been none that um, I thought were. I don't think there's been any that I would call mediocre. I thought they were all like good to to great depending right yeah um anyway so i don't know like how popular willow is now with people um it's not necessarily something you hear people talk about a lot and definitely not something that um although i guess it's popular enough to spawn the series so maybe there is some like nostalgic affection for it but if you like fantasy movies, I think Willow is definitely worth watching. Um, I think it's a very entertaining, fast-paced. Um, it's got a good mix of, you know, fantasy and romance and um, some comedy that, you know, your your mileage may vary, but um, just a really entertaining fantasy movie. And I don't know that, I don't know there's anything else quite like it in right. the 80s um sure. and i think it takes a long time for stuff to kind of come close to the same like feeling of it and maybe maybe not ever necessarily yeah, exactly sure. the same yeah. but um i mean yeah. what el what else can you think of that actually has like lives in this this type of world you're not gonna like this well i think conan is very similar to this except it's more grimdark than willow and willow is definitely like um more whimsical fantasy whereas conan is more like right. but same idea with the terms of like magic and monsters and sorcery and whatever right. um but not in an overbearing kind of way um, but still that sense of adventure Mm -hmm. um, but it's Conan, you know. Right. Um, I think there's a movie called Dragon Slayer from the early 80s that's similar in tone to this. Um, and both those movies came out before Willow came out. But after Willow, you know, not much. I mean, there's a pretty large gap. Maybe Dragonheart. Right. Is the next major motion picture after Willow that's really like a fantasy movie, which has a pretty big cult following, from what I understand. Like, I mean, it's 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 a decent movie. Mm -hmm. David Thewlis in a good role in that movie. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it's just like either low budget or direct to video. I mean, it really it's Game of Thrones yeah. that right. reinvigorates people's love for an interest in fantasy, and that's also led to a huge increase in interest in stuff like. Dungeons and Dragons and just tabletop role playing in general and um you know fantasy novels and now there's all these TV series that we're getting that right you know the 
the Middle Earth TV series and the Game of Thrones sequel and mm-hmm. Willow and um, that Dark Crystal series that was on Netflix. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, just a, a movie that it's not perfect, but I think definitely ahead of its time and definitely shows the prescience of George Lucas for just understanding what people like and what people want to see. And um, I think that people that are younger maybe or who have never seen willow i think if you go back and watch it you'll really enjoy it and it's readily available easily on disney plus yep which a large number of people subscribe to so yeah and um, being just, able to yeah. sorry no go ahead no I'm, I, I was just going to say even as someone who's not in the fantasy that is well documented on this podcast i still found it an enjoyable watch and that even goes outside of my nostalgia for it so um yeah i concur i think it still holds up as a as a as a decent fantasy movie and maybe it is because like you said there's not many examples of it out there um so if you're into that kind of stuff i think it still is um a really like just enjoyable fun movie um to watch so yeah so previous deep dive for lost boys kind of talked about some other stuff mm-hmm. um again i would mention um dragon slayer from the early 80s worth watching um i will always recommend excalibur um in a similar vein i know that you're not as big a fan but i love that right. movie um i think Dragonheart is not like a whatever great movie but it still is entertaining and worth watching um i love conan and i have a really large amount of affection for conan the destroyer even though most people shit on that movie but very similar in tone and a movie that we talked about on the podcast that i think is also kind of similar to willow just in terms of like its world building is um call um or crawl i'm sorry crawl crawl. Crawl. um another like fantasy epic that takes place in its own insular created world but has like it's some sci-fi elements to it but a really really strong influence on me in terms of like narrative style and world building um just the way that it's put together and never ending story for that matter i mean i'm sure everyone's seen never ending story and it's not a great movie by any stretch anymore but still fun to watch and still one of those things where you just kind of get sucked into the the overall universe although again your mileage may vary depending on how much you can take certain elements of that movie so All right. Um, No, I like the recommendations at the end. So, um, all right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Um, Hope you enjoyed. Have a great week. And deuces. Talk to you later.